LMT is a lens by which you assess all economic understanding. The street is full of corruption. It is baked in to every aspect of our society. 1900s, Lenin was predicting global finance capital would do all the things it's doing today. This is written over 100 years ago. All right, everybody, it is Steve, the Rogue Scholar. I hope you all have had a great morning so far. Um, I am just getting ready to get started in this uh, live stream. But before I get too far into it, I was going to try to sketch out and use my phone to kind of capture me writing so you could see this visually. And I'll get to that point when I plan it out further in advance. It's my fault. I'm trying to work full time, take care of life at home, do this get all my thoughts together, answer questions. I'm, I'm like stretched so thin that it's leaving me short on some of these bells and whistles that I think would add value, quite frankly, um, to the overall show. But today we're going to talk about something I feel is vitally important, okay? So it's hard sometimes to see the way things are now is not necessarily even within the framework of what we have now. It doesn't have to be the way it is using the framework that is now, okay? And then there's this like weird, what do we think we want it to be later, right? We have this thing today. We have this thing we'd like tomorrow. How do we get there? The gap in between, it's like that whole, you know, the as is, the to be, and the gap analysis between the two, right? Well, this has become, God, you just think after 10 years of doing this over and over that you would be at a different point. You'd be at a point where you could kind of start talking about new things, add things, change things, build upon. But alas, we got to keep coming back to some of the more basic things. Because even the people that know this or have been around it for a long time fundamentally hear too many different ways of saying it, haven't processed everything properly, are incapable of leading new people to this deeper level of knowledge. And unfortunately, the area of economics lends itself to this pathetic credentialism, lends itself to a lot of appeals to authority. You know, Economics has failed us. The discipline of economics has failed us for our entire lives. The actual proper, proper economics has failed us because it's like mysticism. It's, it's like a bunch of witches brew stirring in a bunch of essential oils and all kinds of other crazy nonsense that doesn't match to anything. And voila, we've got this potion called mainstream economics. We're supposed to apply it liberally to the spot, to the wound, to bleed the patient, all that good stuff. It's failed us. So people have a naturally skeptical eye of economics in general. But I want you to understand, I say this frequently, that a hammer in the hands of a carpenter can build a beautiful home, build a beautiful piece of furniture, build whatever. And a hammer in the hands of a sociopath, it can be used as a lethal weapon, right? It's still the same hammer. 
Nothing has changed about it. It's 100% the same hammer. But wielded by someone with bad intent, with someone with have a different ideological framework for what the value of that hammer is, what the use of that hammer is, that hammer becomes something entirely different. Okay? So when we talk to people about modern monetary theory, people immediately assume because they see bad people, they see Jeffrey Dahmer's and they see uh, Ted Bundy's with the hammer. They immediately assume that MMT must be something we've got to implement because they only see bad guys holding the hammer today. They don't know what it looks like when the good guys hold the hammer. They have never seen the good guys hold the hammer because despite friends out there who somehow or another find a way to lick the chode of the establishment Democrats and find a way every election cycle to bend themselves into pretzels and tell everybody how wrong they are for not voting blue or whatever nonsense people do when they can't think beyond the very, very basics. Okay. Because we've never seen the Democrats or the Republicans actually using the economic system we have today for the betterment of people. We think that we have to implement some new system to do that. And this is where a lot of the MMT discussions go off the rails right away, immediately go off the rails because a lot of times people just assume that of course the people that are using the system today are doing it correctly. Why wouldn't they be there? You know, they're, they're the experts, right? And when you try to explain to them, no, they're, they have a purpose. They, they're, they're Ted Bundy with a hammer in it. They're there to make the wealthiest, the wealthiest they, they can possibly be. And they are trying very, very hard to keep us. Okay. From having anything. They want to make sure student debts are hard to pay off because that keeps us out of joining the elite. They want to make sure medical debt rises because that keeps us out of joining the elite. They want to make sure that we always have something keeping us down, so to speak, to keep us from focusing on joining the elite, to being one of them. They apply huge amounts of barriers to entry to the class above. And then they make it extremely expensive if you decide to try to class jump. The only hope you have is either a trust fund, mommy and daddy left you something, uh, you somehow or another win the lottery, or miraculously they strike oil on your property and somehow or another you capitalize on I don't know. But at the end of the day, most of us aren't in that position. Okay. And so we always stay down. And so when you tell somebody that MMT describes the system it is today, their initial reaction is, fuck that. Why do I want the system we have today? The system we have today sucks. It's destroying me. It's ruining my life. It's, it's horrible. So you kind of feel that sympathy because you understand that they see the implementation as it is today. The use of it is the way it is today. And they assume that that is just the way it is. And so all of a sudden you see a lot of crazy crankery out there, these cuckoo ideas about how it could be fixed and what they need to do. And, and it's all based on things that they don't really fully understand. Okay. 
So you try and explain to them how we can do a Green New Deal or how we can do, you know, make production in the United States belong to the people and show them how we can fund every bit of it or how we can fund new uh, smokestacks across all the industries and retrofit them for green energy or whatever. By the way, thank you so much, Double K, for the super chat. Two super chats. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for that so much. Really appreciate that. Um, but the point I'm making here is that to talk about modern monetary theory, you've got to get past a lot of the things they think they know. They think they know things. And so because they think they know things, you first have to overcome the things they think they know. And people hold on to things they think they know with a death grip because to acknowledge that they don't know something, that's a blow to their ego. That's a blow to them as a human being. They, they feel some type of way about being wrong, okay? And they don't want to be embarrassed. They don't want to be shown up, whatever. So they double down. But you must understand that even if it's a bastardized use of our economic system, MMT describes the bastardized use of the system that is in place today. MMT also explains all the myths and legends that they have supplemented to keep us from understanding how it really works. MMT demystifies those things, which again, for those people who buy into the myths and legends who have been led around for years through this dirty mindset of economics, this, this, this thing that nobody wants to learn. They don't choose to learn in school because it's a pain in the ass. They don't want to learn it anywhere because it's a pain in the ass. So naturally it's not a popular subject. It doesn't get the likes and clicks. It doesn't get all the support that you'd like it to because it's boring and they didn't want to know it to begin with. But yet every single one of the problems they want to point to every single one of the problems they want to talk about can be described through the lens of economics and to get a pure lens, a lens that really shines a light on things. MMT, the developers of modern monetary theory put their time and energy into developing a lens to show us not only the step-by-step -step plumbing within the system, right? Which is profound. No one else does this, but it's step by step. It's to the point where even people like Paul Krugman don't understand the operational steps of money creation. They don't understand the operational steps of selling bonds and why you do it and that you sell them after you spend. They don't understand those things. So you're getting hit with a double whammy of bad media, disgraceful alt media that just says things for likes and clicks, disgraceful MSM that says things to carry the water for the establishment. And then the rank and file running around just saying things, okay? It's like there's very, very hard to weave through this maze of, of disinformation that floods us, okay? But just know, let's get this grounded right now. Let's frame this part right now. MMT is a lens that describes what you're seeing at any given time. It describes employment. It describes public spending. It describes recessions. It describes how money it gets into the system. It describes how money leaves the system. It describes the proper role and use of taxes. 
Oh, wow. There's another super chat. Thank you so much, Jim Bird, buddy. Thank you for the big super chat. Thank you so much. Anyway, so we got it down that MMT is a lens that describes. It doesn't implement. You don't implement MMT. Never implement MMT. Folks, did I say you never implement MMT? Let me say it again for the people in the back. We never implement MMT. MMT is. It just is. It's like a lens, a lens to view economics, a way of understanding the way things work. All right. So when you talk to a socialist and they try and tell you, well, no, actually the means of production and the value is brought by labor and that surplus value and it's this. They only understand what Marx told them in Capital. And that was written before we understood fiat money. That was written before Friedrich Knapp wrote about state theory of money. That His stuff was written before the United States government had created the Federal Reserve or had created uh, the way the unit of account, the U.S. dollar operates. He had written all this stuff way before any of that. He didn't understand. All he understood was commodity money. Okay. So in the time of commodity money, Marx understood what was going on. But in the world of fiat money, okay, and yes, he does tip his hat in volume three of Capital. For those of you all who are in for a reading exercise that requires a magnifying glass, please go out and read volumes one, two, and three of Karl Marx's Capital. Please. It's it's actually... You know, from the most part that I've read, and I haven't read it all because it's very, very challenging to get through, okay? But what I have read, there's a lot of valuable insights. It's incredibly important to understand. But now in a modern society, we've got to bring the lens of the state as the currency issuer into that analysis. That analysis wasn't there then. It is now. It must be now. You understand that it must now. And so one of the beauties of Karl Marx was that he contradicted himself through a lot of his writing. Why? Not because he was flim flam or didn't know it was asked from his elbow. Karl Marx was always searching. He was always digging. He was always learning. And when new information came up, Karl Marx changed. He altered it. He moved with it. Okay. Unfortunately, Marxists, Marxists don't change with new information. I shouldn't say all Marxists because I'm a Marxist. But Marxists, as a rule, don't change with new information. And as a result of that, the lack of understanding of fiat currency destroys their fundamental understanding of everything, starting with an understanding that they believe that taxation is being taken from them to fund these things. It's baked into everything they believe. So this is fundamentally wrong from the start. Right from the get-go, they've got the economics incorrect. You'll note that I said I'm a Marxist. I'm a socialist. I am a guy who is not here to crap on Karl Marx. I'm here to say, Karl Marx 
for the time that he wrote, did the best he could with the tools he had with the information that was available. Now what is required is for Marxists to understand how fiat currencies work, to understand how they can leverage state theory of money, have a learner functional finance and all the rest of that into this here and now mold, what we're dealing with right here, right now. Think about it. right here, right now, not in 200 years when we've toppled the oligarchy and the proletariat, taken back the means of production globally. Thank you, Trotsky, et cetera. No. Right here, right now. And knowing that we don't have any power right here, right now, knowing that we are not the ones in the driver's seat in the halls of Congress, we, we have to somehow or another find a way to understand, describe, and make changes with the way society is today, with the tools that are out there today, and understanding that when you learn how the fucking system works, then you could see through the veneer of all the propaganda we're filled with mainstream media, with all the propaganda that we're filled with by the political parties, all the propaganda we're told by people, well-meaning people even, that come up with these wacko theories from listening to Alex Jones and others. And then they bring that to the table. And all the wacko theories of the libertarians and all the wacko theories of the cryptocurrency people and all the wacko theories baked into one, you get this big old melting pot of trash. And we're expecting regular people to sift through it. But then you take the socialists and that's where I, that's where I live, right? That's I, so I'm talking to that. We have to understand that short of having the means of production, short of having this proletariat rising, uprising, taking power back, within the scope of what we have today, we have to learn about today, we have to understand how the system works today. And not just how the bad guys use it, but how the good guys could use it, meaning us. This is not capitalism, I'm saying. This is this money system. And I know some people somehow or another believe that it'll be a moneyless society. Let me tell you something. Even on Star Trek, they used credits. Okay? That'll be three credits, five credits. I remember watching them join onto the space station. And it was the trouble with the Tribbles, if you all remember that episode. And you had the Klingons. And you had these others coming in. And then they had the peddler guy who brings the tribbles to the bar. There's like 10 per tribble. The guy goes, how about one per tribble? And then they negotiate. It's like down to six. Well, the tribbles grow out of crazy and whatever. But the point is, even in Star Trek, they were using money, a form of money, credits. Okay? So MMT will describe an economy, period. Whatever it is, wherever it is, based on conditions of its time based on that moment okay based on that moment it will describe whatever the currency is it will describe the way the system flows it will describe that and that takes into account 
not just the way fiat systems work, but all the man-made, all the man-made rules that we put in place to try to curb certain behaviors or to enhance certain behaviors. Those are not economics. Those are political constraints that are put in. They're variables in an equation, if you will, okay? Debt ceiling, that's not a real thing. There is no such thing as a debt ceiling in the world. But in the United States, there's a debt ceiling. Why is that? It's a man-made rule, okay? The national debt is not a real thing. The United States, we've made it a thing, okay? And each of these things, these are rules. They're not real. I mean, they're real. They're real constraints, but they're not real in terms of they have any meaningful value. They're just there based on somebody's idea that, hey, wouldn't it be a good idea if we had a debt limit? Or, hey, wouldn't it be a good idea if whatever? Now, there's more nuance to that on each of these rules. There's reasons for X and there's reasons for Y. You can look back and you can understand that when we had a gold standard, there was a different accounting method, and MMT describes the gold standard as well. MMT defines, though, the highest order, the highest order of moneyness, if you will, is a sovereign, non-pegged, non-convertible, free-floating fiat currency. Gives you the absolute most policy space, most flexibility, a flexible currency arrangement that allows it to float on the open market but at home, anything that is for sale in U.S. dollars can never be priced out if we can buy anything that is available for sale in U.S. dollars. Okay, so this is, this is today, currency today. Our government can buy anything that is for sale in U.S. dollars. Where does it become tricky globally? You say, what about the confidence in the dollar, blah, blah, blah. Listen. As long as countries are doing business with the United States, when they buy something or sell something in the United States, they're going to get U.S. dollars back. That's it. A country sells goods and services within the United States, they receive U.S. dollars, period. And what they do with those U.S. dollars, whether they buy funds or uh, bonds in, uh, at the Fed, through the Treasury bonds, whatever, they choose to, to have that in the savings, the safe savings that they know will always pay. If they choose to do that, then they choose to do that. If they decide, well, you know what? I'm going to be doing a lot more business with Russia. I'm going to go ahead and take my U.S. dollars and convert them to rubles. Or maybe I'm going to be doing a lot more business with the EU, and I want to make sure I have euros. They might trade them out on the open market to get euros. But it has nothing to do with our ability to buy things. A country that wouldn't take dollars as part of trade through this process is a country that's saying, I'm not willing to do business with the United States. Okay? Now, I don't know too many countries that are not interested in at least doing business with the United States. It's a huge market for them. And as of now, getting U.S. dollars for most of these smaller countries is a big deal because they need them for reserves so that they can do business back and forth with the United States, okay? A lot of countries will peg their own currency. In other words, I have a peso. I'm tying the value of my peso to the U.S. dollar, 
I'm just coming up with it. It could be anything. You name this currency, whatever you want to name it. And then that means they got to have enough U.S. dollars to cover whatever they're going to do that since they're backing their currency with that money, with that foreign currency. We don't do that. We don't have to in the United States. Our currency is fine. We don't would never peg our currency to another currency and provide an external constraint that could cause all kinds of problems. You see what we do to other countries. By them tying their currency to our currency, we are able to upend them. We are able to do sanctions on them. We're able to flip the world on its head. And when you see countries similarly having single imports or exports like places in South America that only have crude, only have crude, they don't have refined oils and stuff like that, they're competing directly with Saudi Arabia. Now, what happens when Saudi Arabia says, I don't like a new entrant in my market? They drop the bottom out of the price. And what happens? Now, all of a sudden, places like South American countries that were depending on oil sales to keep their economies afloat, suddenly the one market that they had to play in is gone kaput because they no longer have enough money coming through because the price dropped because somebody with much bigger footprint was able to squash them, okay? But you need to understand that it's not a matter of what happens if they lose faith in the dollar. If suddenly the U.S. did not have a world's reserve currency or whatever, which is ridiculous because there's a bunch of world reserve currencies, okay? We're just one of them in the basket. We are the predominant one because of petroleum purchases being made in U.S. dollars, hence the petrodollar, okay? The petrodollar is a numeraire. In other words, we're pricing petroleum purchases in U.S. dollars. This is a way of standardizing purchases around the world, okay? By doing that, though, people need U.S. dollars. So this puts the United States in a very, very privileged spot. If that were to come to an end, what might happen? Well, the U.S. maybe doesn't have as many cheap imports to buy. So what does the U.S. then have to do? The U.S. then will return manufacturing and return some of the stuff back to the domestic continent or within its neo-colonial space where people are still willing to play with us. And voila, now we're going to do a replacement. We're no longer going to purchase XYZ from so-and-so. We're now going to produce it over here for ourselves. So if you understand what I'm saying, all this, oh my God, the bricks are coming and they're going to divide the world. Well, guess what? They are making decisions that they would like to do business. The BRICS, the Russia, uh, you know, the, the China, all of the Iran, all these folks, they want to do business together and they want to be away from the U.S. dollar. They want to be away from the U.S.'s ability to manipulate them. Does that mean that China is going to stop doing business with the United States? No. They are just providing favor within a certain trading block. They are making it easier to do business with them, with people that are within this space. Does that mean that there'll be no commerce with the United States? Absolutely not. That's not it at all. We have just gotten so used to cheap imports. We have been able to prop our economy up on the labor of the rest of the world that we assume 
somehow or another that that's our God-given right to have cheap imports, that we can just extract resources from around the world. But it doesn't mean the U.S. dollar is going to die. Now, what it might mean is that countries will do everything they can to build regional trade unions, if you will, groups of countries built to trade together, trade packs, and and maybe even local domestic currencies within that trade pack, like you're seeing possibly happen within South America. And you might see that happen in Africa as well. But it doesn't mean they wouldn't do business with the U.S. It just means they're making it easier to do business with allies within their space. All right. So let's put this kind of today world here. Fact is the United States and any whatever country you're from, if you're from around the world somewhere, and your country creates its own currency, you're not part of the EU, and even the EU has changed a little bit since the beginning of the uh, European Union and the Euro uh, project. But if you're in Russia, you have your own currency. If you're in Australia, you have your own currency. If you're in Japan, you have your own currency. If you're in China, you have your own currency. If you're in the UK, you have your own currency. Even Canadians, IA, right? Even Canadians, Thai, have their own currency, right? So. They're going to be able to do the same things within their country, provided they have the real resources in their country for sale and the productive capability of creating uh, new and advanced uh, products, enhanced products, products and services that are required. So I tell you this because I am so sick to death of hearing people say, it's the end of the dollar. That's the dollar, man. Right? Cool, dudes. It, it, it's, it's the kind of stuff that spreads like wildfire. Somebody puts a tweet out there, the end of the U.S. dollar. And every person that ever didn't understand economics proves they don't understand economics and runs out there and retweets it. Sometimes being popular isn't a sign of being smart, by the way, folks, just in case you wanted to know. Which brings us to the future state. We may want to have a socialist utopia. I do. Count me in. I want to have an eco-socialist utopia, right, where we can make different choices for our lives, where we can be a part of a larger public space and at the same time live a life without heart-racing fear of rushing to the capitalist marching tune, okay? I want to have peace and tranquility, and I see that within a socialist world all the time. That's what I view. But you've got to get there, right? And so that means that what do you do between now and then? You don't have the conditions. You don't have the numbers. You don't have the apparatus. You don't have the parallel um, systems that I've taught, parallel institutions that I've been screaming about the people. Well, yeah, I'm going to go vote for some vote flu. I, 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 I'm going to vote in the parties. I can't do any of that parallel institution stuff because it just doesn't make sense to me why you wouldn't vote for Joe Biden. We are plagued by small brainisms. Okay. We are plagued by this. It's horrible. I'm not going to lie to you. I can't even lie to you. The fact is, whether you vote for Biden or whatever, it doesn't matter. Nothing will fundamentally change. The real issue is how do we make the system as it is today work for us until we get our future state? So we have the as-is, which I've described. United States government creates its own currency, spends it into thin air, 
voila. The sad part is that the Republican side, the, the right wing side, the supply side has won the game so far. So you're living in a neoliberal world that has neocolonialism. This is all the way they use it. They have a massive military to patrol the world, to control markets, to do all this. That's the world that the neoliberals have created. That's the world the capitalist class has created. That's the world you live in today. That's who's got their hands on the levers of the economy. Tomorrow, that's a different story, isn't it? If we win some revolution, if we suddenly have these secondary parallel institutions that we build up enough that they eventually take over the other institutions and the change comes without bullets, without guns, then great. But we've got today to deal with. How do we deal with today? If you know that the country is capable without cutting spending here and without cutting spending there, regardless of what it spends, because taxation never, ever, ever pays for spending, ever. So without that, how do we get there, right? So obviously we know that the government could do these things. It could provide us health care yesterday. Wouldn't even have to charge us a copay. Government could cover, cover every penny of it without problem. Why won't it do it? You got to ask yourself, why won't Joe Biden do that right now? He's president of the United States. He had a supermajority. He could have done it. Why didn't he do that? There's a reason. It's because the man holding the power is a neoliberal capitalist piece of shit that you guys beat everybody over the head and say, we got to vote for Biden. Just remember that. Remember if you were one of them. You did that. Okay? You know, don't hate me. I'm just, I'm just making sure you own what you did. I want you to know you did that. You did that. Okay? So because that's who he is, that's what you've got. If you voted for Trump, Trump would do things crazy in his own right. The difference here is you've got to understand that neither one of these groups are leftist, socialist, for the people, parties in any way, shape, or form. So you get what you get. Envision, if you will, even a democratic socialist, not a full socialist, not somebody I'd want necessarily, but a dem socialist. They get in power. They start bringing in a bunch of others. They start getting others elected. Somehow or another, we're able to overcome the duopoly stranglehold, and suddenly you've got the Congress filled with socialists and eco-socialists, and they want to exact what they want their world vision to be. They could go ahead hypothetically and eliminate all taxes for everyone making less than 500000 and below. And they could put inheritance taxes. They could put Wall Street speculation tax. They could literally rewrite the tax code completely and fundamentally change society forever. They could, instead of keeping the lie of FICA taxes funding Social Security, they could rip that away make sure everybody, when they leave the workforce, at whatever point in time, they are now going to get made whole. <laughs> They're going to get 100000 a year plus benefits, whatever it is. I don't care. And you're going to give them their benefits. You're going to give them whatever. You can do that. You could do that yesterday. You could do that right now. The system we have today would allow for that. 
The system we have today could give free college. It could give free elementary school, middle school, high school, trade school, whatever. It could give free certifications, anything you want to do. If you want to go on a trip around the world, put yourself on a list. and They could make nationalizing the airlines a big thing, and it should be. All transportation should be nationalized. There shouldn't be private profiteers in the airline industry. It should be 100% owned by the public, just like the skies should be owned by the public, just like all the means of production should be owned by the public. It's preposterous to think of owning land. These things are weird when you think about it. But those are things that you could change within the system we have today. Okay? So when you think about what a socialist system might look like, what if you outlawed private corporations and made it so that the only kind of business allowed was either publicly owned or co-ops or government? What if that was the only way you could build a corporation? <clears throat> you could be a trade person and have a trade license. You could do it. But, but that could happen. It's not going to right now, but it could. So you could create a government of we the people, implement these socialist solutions using the existing monetary system that we have today. You could change the rules. Remember at the beginning, I told you there are things that are just the way a fiat currency works. And then there's political rules. There's the political rules that people, human beings, put in place. We could put human rules in that are socialist human rules. We could say banks can't do X, Y, Z. We could regulate the banks and we could make them do what we want them to do. We couldn't. Banks were already public banks when they were created. All banks are public banks. They get a charter from the federal government. And they are held by Congress to certain things that they're allowed to do and not allowed to do. Because of deregulation, because of the capitalist order, banks, they don't look anything like a public purpose institution. They are a profit-making institution only. And they serve the wealthy and they serve the elite. And most people don't, quite frankly, a lot of people don't even have access to banking right now. The underbanked, many, many black and brown people on payday are sitting there at payday letters because they don't have bank accounts because they're underbanked. Homeless people don't have bank. I mean, it's crazy how the system is set up to give privilege to those who already have things, okay? So all of this stuff, every bit of this, yes, and here you go, climate change, the same thing, every aspect of it. What do you want to do with climate crisis? Do you want to retrofit every smokestack in the country, retrofit every vehicle to make them all electric? Whatever. Do you want to get rid of personal ownership of vehicles and make everything public transportation? Whatever. I'm not telling you I like one of those things or don't like one of those things. I'm saying every possible thing out there, free pharmaceuticals made by human beings for human beings without a profit motive. Why not? 100% possible, 100% possible. So the future state is some state that we can talk about, we can wax poetically about, we can build an analysis, we can have a framework from which we want to build the future, but we must deal with today 
and we must deal with a transition. We must understand that right now we don't have the numbers. We don't have enough people that are even informed to have a real conversation. I have people coming at me on the daily as I critique Richard Wolf. They have no basis in understanding what I'm talking about. I try to boil it down like a dummy because I'm just a dude too, right? Idiots try to bring out credentialism. What about your credentials? Let me see your credentials. That it matters. But my credentials go something like this. I have a master of science in technology management with a master's certificate in strategic management of technology and innovation. That's master's degree number one. Master's degree number two. I have a master of business administration. I have a bachelor's degree in information systems management. I have a undergraduate certificate in IT project management. I am a project management professional. I am an ITIL Foundations three certified person. I'm a scrum master, certified scrum master. Okay. I, I mean, bottom line is I had three seminars of a PhD program in organizational change and leadership. None of those are economists, right? But if you went to school and you got a PhD in economics, you would be taught the same idiotic bullshit that taxes fund spending, that bond sales create the money for the government, that the government borrows money from China. You would get all that crap, every bit of it. And you would pay through the nose for that education. In fact, many friends I have that go to mainstream schools that get economics degrees find once they're introduced to MMT that they have to unlearn everything they were taught. They realize everything they were taught was full of shit. The mysticism is disgraceful. And yet, these fuckers point to Richard Wolf being a Yale economist. Now listen, I don't have a dog in the fight with Richard Wolf. I know some people hate him. I know some people love him. I don't really care about him. I'm, I'm, I'm no, I, I, don't, I don't know him. He may be a great guy. I've said this before. He may be a wonderful man. This is not an indictment on him as a human being. This is an indictment on his lack of understanding of macroeconomics. Being a Marxist scholar does not mean, if he's a Marxist scholar in particular, that's a real problem because Marx, if he's going by that, didn't learn, didn't speak to, didn't understand fiat currency. And so I hear Richard Wolff say the damnedest things. Why is that a problem? Well, because the sycophants that follow him around Think that if you say something against him, that you just got to be wrong, period, because Richard Wolf, Marxist, knows his shit. Yale, he's smart. He knows everything. I mean, after a while, you start realizing the hero worship is almost as big of a problem. It's a disgraceful behavior, right? People freaking all loyal and crazy spooning up on alt media people, YouTube hosts, podcasters, fucking thinking somehow or another because they talk to them that they're their BFF, that now all of a sudden, whatever. The fact is that every one of us is fallible. Every last one of us is fallible. 
The difference is, is that not every one of us spends our time learning how the economics works. And coming from my MBA program, where I had a huge dose of orthodox economics, Keynes, Mises, all that stuff, monetarist thinking, all of that, all came through. But what does it mean? Not a whole lot, right? So when you say, what are your credentials? I think it's almost better credentials to not have an economics degree. Okay. The good news about having classical economics training is that you already know what the people that are saying the dumb shit are saying, what they mean and where they're getting it from. But once you understand through the lens of modern monetary theory and you understand everything, everything that changed once the U.S. government moved away from the Bretton Woods Accord and took on this full, free-floating, sovereign, non-peg, non-convertible fiat currency, and you realize that your economist friends are all talking as if the world is still pre-1972. Well, you know what? Fundamentally, we are a fuck society if you can't get that. If you can't get that. And so I get the, the trolls. Why are you busting on so-and-so? They're just an alt-media person. Or why are you busting a Richard Wolf? He's a socialist. He knows what he's I love you. Here's my favorite. Richard Wolf is a national treasure. He might be a national treasure, but he is no macroeconomic economist. And it's time to stop making him be a hammer because he's not. You remember, go back to the hammer theory. I don't want to hear shit about Robert Reich either. This guy doesn't know his arm from his elbow when it comes to macroeconomics. Richard Wolf doesn't know his ass from his elbow when it comes to macroeconomics. Thomas Saul doesn't know his ass from his elbow when it comes to macroeconomics. I'm sorry. The system on paper is meant to be very, very convoluted and crazy and challenging to understand. But I want to tell you right here, right now, when you think about money within the government, think of it like this. The government is a giant cloud. Anything that happens in the government sector isn't real. It's not really happening in the private sector. So money doesn't really exist as we know it today within the government sector. It only really takes on the form that we know and love once it's spent into the private sector. So you get a lot of these very, very serious people. Very, very serious people niggling around about the Treasury's general account. You want to get all up into the Treasury's general account. Treasury's general account lives within the government sector. Okay. And so because of those rules that we talked about previously, the Treasury has this general account that's there with the intention of ensuring that there are not overdrafts, that the government always has active money within their accounts to make sure all payments clear. But this is a sleight of hand. It's really just a means of trying to show you 
that the government will always make its bills. That's the bottom line. That's the bottom line. And so, well, you know, actually, Steve, taxes do fund spending because the Treasury's general account. You know what I mean? Very serious. I'm very serious. I'm very, very serious about serious things. I've got serious things on my mind. I've got to talk about the Treasury's general account. Very serious. Not impressed at all. Okay. They could just as easily tell the Fed, make sure all payments clear, period. But there's rules and there's gaming in the system that they do to make it so that that's the way it is, okay? Anyway, point is, is that MMT describes the system as it is. Republicans, when they're in charge, they have their own way of handling the economy and they do what they do. Democrats, when they're in charge, they have a way of handling the economy and they do what they do. Most of it's bullshit, though. And any attempt to say we can't afford something is a lie. So to me, socialists and others that keep trying to debate about if we implement MMT. Well, we don't implement MMT. MMT is. It's already there. It is what it is. It's the description of the system as it is today. Now, if you tell me, well, you mean if we get socialists and they're running it like socialists? Oh, wait a minute. Is that what you meant? Is that what you meant? You mean if we ever had control of the power, if we ever had the control of the levers? So what you're trying to say is if we had control of the levers, that somehow or another, we're going to fuck it up? Is that what you're saying? Look, chasing rich people for dollars, for tax dollars, is never and should never be to pay for programs. So from an MMT perspective, we're going to tell you point blank, separate spending from taxing. Do not tie the two together. Do not make them conditional on one another. They are not the same. They do not have any relationship whatsoever to one another. We can spend and we can spend and we can buy anything for sale that is available for sale in U.S. dollars. As far as the tax goes, we can chase after rich people tax dollars all day long to claw back their wealth because they're too fucking wealthy. And they're using it disproportionately to impact society in a way that no one individual should be allowed to. They're taking away, that's robbing us of democracy. That's not democracy at all. It's definitely not freedom. Freedom for them is slavery for us. So the idea of taxing them and clawing back their things, making rules, political rules to control wealth accumulation, control generational wealth being transferred, et cetera. These are all rules that can be structured around society, but they are not MMT one way or the other. MMT would say, sure, you can tax the rich. Sure, you can choose not to tax the rich. Sure, you can tax the poor. Sure, you can choose not to tax the poor. Sure, you can tax uh, sales, but you don't have to tax sales. Sure, you can tax Wall Street speculation, but you don't need to tax Wall Street speculation. 
The question is, what kind of society are you trying to build? And you control the levers that way. It's not a matter of, damn it, we need to cut spending on the war so we have money for schools. We have money for schools. We should definitely cut the military budget. We should stop the wars. But they are not tied together. There is no tie together. There's no tie together. We can give everybody a free student lunch and still be going to war. I don't want us to go to war. But as long as there are real resources available for sale, we can do whatever we need to do. This is very important. And the final thing I'm going to say before we go, because I've got eight minutes left before I got to get back to the world. Inflation. Inflation, it's a shame we didn't hit the ball out of the park with this. But inflation comes around with a couple reasons. Number one, when you raise interest rates up, you raise the cost of everything. Interest rate hikes are inflationary, interestingly enough. Okay? When the government pays more for something than it did previously, inflation goes up because the government is the first initial price setter when it spends that money into the people. The next thing is when you have a commodity like petroleum and the cost of the petroleum goes up. When petroleum is a part of every single thing that we do, whether it be plastics, glass, fuel, lubricants, whatever, when the price of petroleum goes up, the price of other things could go up. They could choose not to raise prices, but business is going to try and maximize profits. So they will raise prices. That's inflationary, right? The other thing that would be inflationary is say you go through a pandemic and your supply chains break down. Now all of a sudden time is money because it takes longer to get things from A to B. It takes more effort to build these things because now the simplified supply chains are broken down. So costs go up that way too because there's scarcity of various components, whether it be transistors or resistors or semiconductors or whatever, microchips, you name it. That can cause prices to go up. But one thing that can never make prices go up is printing money. You'll have to show me the technical way that printing money creates inflation. If you can't do it, I will embarrass you, I will shame you, and I will crush you on that thing because I can't stand it. It needs to die a death of a thousand cuts right now. It needs to be over. We do not have a commodity money, so printing money doesn't create inflation. What creates inflation is businesses saying, hey, looks like those proles down there got a little bit more in their paycheck. I'll bet you that means we can raise our prices up five cents. I bet you that means we can grab seven cents of this new pool of, but we can grab a little bit more of it. Okay. But that, that is not inflation. That is price gouging. People saying, hey, everybody thinks you're printing money. Let's jack prices up. That's price gouging. That's not inflation. Inflation is the persistent rise of all prices. Okay. MMT describes that. People tried to confuse everything that happened during the pandemic as MMT informed. Well, everything is MMT informed. It doesn't mean it's good. So just keep this in mind. Inflation is never, forget Milton Freeman, is never a monetary phenomenon. It is never 
a monetary phenomenon. It is always a shortage, paying higher prices by the currency issuer, the monopoly issuer, the U.S. government in that case, the rise of price of a commodity that is ubiquitous through all products, something like that, breakdowns in supply chains, increased demand, things like that. But it's never a monetary phenomenon. Anyway, I'm Steve Grumbine. I hope you guys have enjoyed this. I've tried really hard to uh, make it fun, but uh, obviously um, fun is in the eyes of the beholder. To me, I get tired of having to do these kinds of streams, but I hopefully you all will pick up on them and realize that, you know, hey, it's great to have an economist tell you these things. It's even better when regular people learn it so that they can tell you how it is. And I'm Steve Grumbine. I am, in fact, the Rogue Scholar. And I am out of here. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support our efforts, please take a moment to subscribe and check out our other work on the Real Progress in Action YouTube channel and visit our sister organization's website at realprogressives.org. 